0: Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP, Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas. For your listening edification, today is Sunday, January sixteenth, 2022. And the show will be rebroadcast on Monday, January the twenty-fourth, 2022, from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. Please join us at koop.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. This is our 92nd post-COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us. And we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight, and thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So, stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Welcome. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis with your host, Pedro Gatos. We have been covering the Ukraine-Russian-U.S.-NATO conflict since the 2014 U.S.-enabled coup in Ukraine. But tonight, for the first time, we actually have somebody that has been at the front. He is a Texan-born, 60-year-old, separatist fighter that we'll be introducing shortly, and we will be getting a feet-on-the-ground, eyes-on-the-ground overview of what we have been presenting since 2014 please stay tuned for a really important program from someone who has been fighting for the Donetsk Republic since 2014. Enjoy. Okay, welcome Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby Austin. This is bringing light into darkness Monday news and analysis. I'm your host Pedro Gatos. Today is Sunday, January the 16th, 2022. We will be rebroadcasting the show on Co-op Radio on Monday, January the 24th, 2022, from 6 to 7 p.m. Very excited to be bringing to our listeners a voice and an actor on the front lines of the Donetsk eastern Ukraine, Ukrainian military conflict. But please, first let me indulge you with a short introduction for context. Being a student of United States foreign policy, particularly since World War II, and investigating so many of our interventions in foreign policy, I've come to realize that U.S. propaganda is arguably the most advanced in the world. It's seduced us into acquiescing that to the false flag Gulf Tonkin attack that suggested that our aggressions in Vietnam had merit. They did not. And in addition to the horrific US loss of life, millions of Vietnamese died. US propaganda seduced us into believing Iraq had weapons of mass destruction, Iraq was harboring Al-Qaeda, and that Saddam Hussein was involved in the 9-11 attacks. As a result of these falsehoods, we acquiesced while pre-2003 invasion sanctions were followed by our U.S.-led intervention, resulting in over a million Iraqi deaths. In 2011, we were propagandized into acquiescing with lies once again swallowed whole and completely unvetted by our U.S. mainstream media, that a great humanitarian disaster was both pending and occurring in Libya and therefore demanded another U.S. quote-unquote humanitarian-led intervention In the northeast Benghazi area of Libya, an uprising was occurring that according to a 2007 report four years earlier by our own U.S. Army's West Point Combating Terrorism Center, revealed what later proved to be a NATO-backed pro-democracy rebel group in Libya that were in fact an Al-Qaeda Islamic terrorist-led group called the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, the LIFG. It was listed by the United States State Department, the United Nations, and the UK Home Office as an international terrorist organization. That in fact, the West Point study based on data captured from Al-Qaeda files revealed this part of Libya in which this rebellion was occurring at the highest concentration of Al-Qaeda Islamic extremist terrorists per 100,000 presidents in the world. Yet, this information was kept from the United States public. Instead, we were lied into believing that this was a popular uprising worthy of a US-led invasion. Moreover, Libya at the time of our illegal invasion was the country with the highest human development index on the African continent. In other words, in 2011, the year of the illegal overthrow of the Libyan government, the highest quality of life for the majority population of any country on the African continent was in fact the country of Libya, the country we were overthrowing. Yet because of our engineered ignorance of these facts, we negligently allowed our country, our foreign policy, to criminally turn the country with the highest quality of living standards for its majority population compared to any other country on the continent of Africa, as well as the leading country for promoting the same type of humanitarian advancements throughout the continent of Africa, we turned it into a killing field over the last 10 years to this day. Not only that, As CNN reported, our intervention that was led by our first black president of the United States paved the way for the return of slavery and slave sales to Libya. In October 2017, a CNN team traveled to Libya and witnessed and reported a dozen men auctioned, some for as little as $400 each. The crew is also told of auctions taking place in nine other locations in the country post-U.S. invasion of Libya. These are just three examples of U.S. intervention in Vietnam, Iraq, and Libya, which were essentially humanitarian war crimes, resulting in millions of human deaths, not thousands, not hundreds of thousands, but millions of human deaths, yet they were represented to the United States public as humanitarian interventions. For the sake of time and our interest to get to our guest, we will not detail the criminal intervention results we are responsible for in Afghanistan and Syria and other locations that occurred just this century through U.S. foreign intervention, which have cumulatively caused an additional million-plus loss of human lives. Instead, we turn to Ukraine and the pejorative demonization of Russia led by our U.S. government and mainstream media. And just a couple of important contextual facts to understand how, once again, vital informational facts have been largely kept from the United States public during this propaganda campaign, which we call news coverage of the Ukraine-Russia-NATO crisis. First, the coup of 2014, as proven by the voices of our own high-level State Department employees that were taped, was clearly enabled and manufactured through U.S. intervention. We have detailed the evidence of this fact on other shows, which is available upon request, so we will move on. Secondly, the second premise, the very areas that Russia is accused of leading the uprising against the post coup government, namely the Crimea, the eastern regions and southern regions of predominantly Russian-speaking populations of Donetsk and Luhansk, according to polling that we have detailed and documented on previous shows, was 80% or more in voting preference support of the very president we couped out. Yet no mention of this fact in U.S. press coverage of the conflict, because it does not fit the narrative of Russia is bad and the U.S. West is good. And lastly, post-U.S. enabled coup, a half dozen high cabinet positions, including the cabinet positions responsible for Ukraine's security and forces associated that were appointed to Ukrainians are clearly neo-Nazi-driven ideologues in these half-dozen or more cabinet positions. Again, we have provided detailed, evidentiary proof of this claim on past shows as well, which are available upon request, so we will not revisit the proof of that allegation here today, but use it as a premise. But the realization of this fact, which most of the U.S. public is oblivious to, is necessary to understand what is going on in eastern Ukraine, a military conflict as we speak. And it is this context that we share recent reports coming out of eastern Ukraine. And these recent reports are in December and November of last year and over. 1,000 victims of Ukraine's military aggression against Donbass were discovered in unnamed graves. There is a colossal work that needs to be carried out in Donetsk. Since 2014, about 130 burial places of missing persons have been discovered. It is not known how many more there are. According to Daria Morosova, head of the Commission for the Search of Missing Persons in Donetsk, more than 3000 claims have already been sent to the international criminal court in the Hague this is being documented and sourced from the OSCE remains silent despite uncovering of ukraine's mass killings in Donbass. this is a december 6 2011 article by a investigative journalist that i'm have followed in the past and has great general veracity in his reporting in south front publication back on december the 6 Anyhow, he goes on, from the summer to the present, and this is again December 6th date, an active search for all victims of the Ukrainian military and their allied far-right militias has been underway, culminating in the The creation of a joint committee, which includes representatives of the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics. Investigators, forensic experts, and other investigations into the mass graves will form the foundation of a future tribunal against Kiev, Uh, Collected dossiers of Ukraine's war crimes in Donbass have already been transferred to international authorities. Anyhow, the work since 2014, as we mentioned, 130 burial sites of missing persons have been discovered. Anna Siroka, chair of the interdepartmental working group on the search for the burials in Luhansk, said the enemy went so far as to prevent the burial of the dead. Cemeteries were mined people could not send their loved ones on their final journey." As for tortured civilians from the grave, if the places of these graves are put on a map, they fall on settlements that have been under the control of the so-called Ukrainian volunteer battalions. We have information where they were based." And then finally, the uh, information indicates that there were extensive indications of traces of a torture and outright execution, she added. So with that introduction in the context of what is going on in the Ukraine, it is my great pleasure to welcome Russell Bentley, who is coming to us on Skype here, live from Donetsk. First of all, Russell, welcome to Bringing Light into Darkness.
1: Thanks, Pedro. It's great to be on the show. Great to be hearing from my old hometown of Austin, Texas.
0: Let me just share a few words, because Russell, as he just indicated, is a native Austinite. He moved to Donetsk in 2014 to help defend the people of the Donetsk People's Republic from attacks by the Ukrainian army after the U.S.-backed coup in Ukraine in 2014. He served in the Essence of Time combat unit with Khan Spetsnak Battalion in 2015 and as a military policeman in the Vostok Brigade in 2017, and currently works as a war correspondent and human aid volunteer. He lives with his wife in a small house and enjoys a big garden, and it's just less than five miles from the very front that we are speaking of, front lines of the ongoing Donbass war. He currently holds passports from the United States, the Donetsk People's Republic, and the Russian Federation. And finally, I just wanted to indicate that he does miss Barton Springs, Matt's El Rancho and the Continental Club and Rudy's Barbecue. Anyhow, with that being said, look, this is a serious, very serious intervention that's going on. And if I could start off, Russell, I'd like you to have the latitude to go in whatever directions you feel are important in shaping the on the ground reality that we're not getting here in our media. But first I wanted to ask you, there is the impression that there's this Russian invasion and in support of Donbass, and of course, in the eastern region there. And we've already mentioned how these regions voted overwhelmingly, over 80%, according to polling, in favor of a president, and probably a corrupt one. but One that was democratically elected, nonetheless, that was profoundly undemocratically overthrown by a U.S. coup seems to me if 80% of my neighbors and myself voted for somebody that was overthrown in an illegal coup and which was followed by neo-Nazi-led repression throughout the East. That might be enough uh, of a stimulant to uh, create a real separatist movement. But what is Russian involvement in the eastern Ukraine and what's the real involvement in support by Russia versus indigenous uprisings in Donetsk and Luhansk?
1: Well, the Russian army has never invaded Ukraine. They don't work in Donbass. The situation in Crimea, which was taken back into Russia by also a popular referendum, an overwhelming vote to rejoin Russia after the coup d'etat in Kiev in 2014. the thing was there, the Russians had a treaty with the Ukrainians. After the end of the Soviet Union, there's a major Russian Navy base, in Sevastopol in Crimea. It's one of their most strategic military installations in the whole Russian country. And they had made a treaty, they paid the Ukrainians $100 million a year to allow to continue to have Russian Navy stationed there in Sevastopol in Crimea and also to station troops there in order to uh, provide security. So before the Maidan, for years since the end of the Soviet Union, Russia had a treaty that allowed 25,000 Russian troops to be in Crimea. So there wasn't an invasion. The Russian troops were already there. When the Crimean people decided to have a referendum, there was also Ukrainian police and troops there. And the Russian troops just kept the peace. They just kept the Ukrainians from interfering with the referendum. The referendum was held, it was uh, transparent, it was completely legit, and the vast majority, over 80% of the people in Crimea, voted to return to Russia. And so they did. So there and, was never uh, an invasion.
0: Russell, this is also in the backdrop of offenses that are occurring by the the new coup. Ukrainian government, right? That the people of the Crimea are well aware of and also the people in the East and pretty much trying to, in the new coup government, outlaw the Russian language, which of course was a predominant language of the majority population there. But yeah, I guess the reason for the avalanche of support for the referendum, can you just speak a little bit to that environment that encouraged that type of voting outcome?
1: Well, the majority of the people in Crimea were Russian people, are Russian people. And they understood even before the coup, NATO had tried to open a base there and the people there said, no way. I mean, there was protests in the street about it and it didn't happen because of the opposition of the regular citizens and people of Crimea. So, I mean, it was completely legit election and basically the Russian troops were already there. All they did was Make sure that everything was peaceful, which basically it was virtually bloodless, changing from under Ukraine to being going back to Russia. It was uh Khrushchev in the sixties, and Khrushchev was a Ukrainian and he gave Crimea to Ukraine. Before that, for hundreds of years, it had been Russian. So it was kind of a false way that Ukraine got it, and then it just went back to where it belonged. Just for
0: clarification for our audience, because this is really important history. So We've clarified this in the past, too, and you are reaffirming what our understanding is on bringing light into darkness, that the impression provided to the American public by the U.S. government intelligence and the mainstream media was something much different. Namely, that there are all of these Russian troops in Crimea, and that constituted an invasion. But what you are indicating is that, in fact, by treaty, Russia had the right and the privilege of having up to a certain number, over 20,000 troops present in this. Yeah, they were already there. They were already there. And also, please reiterate again, Russia from a national security position, they don't have a lot of access to the waterways and that type of thing. And you mentioned how important this was as a strategic military location by treaty. Can you elaborate just a little bit more on the national security
1: Sevastopol in Crimea is their main warm water port. It's one of the places that, that where the ocean doesn't freeze in the winter. Mm-hmm. You know, the Black Sea doesn't freeze in the winter, so that's a warm water port where their navy can go in and out all year long. A lot of their places, especially like on the Pacific, these are places that are basically almost in the Arctic, and there's either solid ice or icebergs in the wintertime. So it's a strategic place, and the thing is, the idea—if it had remained in Ukraine, NATO had plans to make it their base, and so it would have been an enemy position right in the heart of Russia.
0: Mm-hmm. And can you elaborate a little bit more on those NATO plans? I've heard that. I haven't seen where that's been sourced from, though. Can you it's, elaborate? No, no,
1: it was—it's uh, official, like NATO plans, as in you know, they had the program, the construction uh, design and all that stuff. They thought they were going to get it once they had the on coup, and it was the referendum that prevented them from getting it.
0: Okay, very good. I want to remind folks we're visiting with Russell Bentley. He's a Texan-born citizen of the world, and he was born back in, I think, 1960. But also, Russell, right. you, know, you volunteered and enlisted in the U.S. service. Can you tell us before going on with this really important history and contemporary issues that are going on. I I hate to be disjointed, but I should have alluded to this a little bit earlier in my introduction of you, but the translation of becoming a U.S. Army enlistee to becoming a Donetsk Army combatant. Can you share that a little bit?
1: Well, uh, I joined the U.S. Army in 1981. My dad basically talked me into it. Kind of bribed me into it said he'd pay for my college and give me a job when i got out and so i joined the army for three years I signed up as a combat engineer served two years in bamberg germany pretty much all over west germany then my final year in uh fort polk louisiana i'm honorably discharged uh, made the rank of e4 and uh that was a good experience for me my dad went broke while i was in the army so uh, i didn't ever get the college or the job but it was a good experience, and it served me well when I came to Donetsk in 2014 at the age of 54. They probably wouldn't have let me join the Army if I hadn't been able to show that I had military experience before. I got here to Donetsk on December 7, 2014. A week later, I joined the Army. I did two weeks of uh, basic training with Vostok Battalion in Iznavata. And on the morning of December 31st, 2014, I went to my first combat position, the Iversky Monastery, right near the Donetsk Airport. It was about 400 meters from the new terminal and also about uh, 400 meters from the control tower of the airport, both which at that time were held by Ukrainian Army units still. It was very, very hot, hot, heavy combat every day with thousands, literally thousands of bullets flying each way. Um, The monastery was in the middle of a graveyard, a huge graveyard, maybe 2,000, 3,000 graves. And the first thing I saw when I got out of the van uh, at, at, at the front was this blown up church. And it made me know for sure who was the good guys and who was the bad guys. There's no question about it. I mean, the people that were installed by the U.S., After the Maidan coup, which was engineered by the U.S., you know, they're genuine Nazis. I mean, they say Heil Hitler, they idolize this guy Stefan Bandera, who was a Nazi collaborator and an incredibly horrible war criminal back in the Second World War. I mean, uh, you know, he was involved in mass slaughters of innocent civilians, women and children and old folks and stuff. And now he's a national hero in Ukraine since this coup d'etat that the U.S. engineered and the people in the east where we are in what's called Donbass, the Don River Basin, we just, we don't put up with Nazis, you know, as any normal human being anywhere in the world would. These are war criminals, mass murderers, torturers. It's uh, every crime in the book, every crime that the Germans and their collaborators did here in the second world war, these guys are doing again. So there's no Russian invasion. It's the people yeah. here defending themselves. When the Ukrainian army first came here, the people, the citizens, the civilians stood in front of the tanks and the BMPs put their hands with just their hands and they stood in front of them and said, hey, look, you're killing your own people and we're here peacefully protesting. You know, this is a fake foreign installed government and the soldiers shot them down and ran them down. And so then the people stood up on their own it wasn't russian-led it wasn't russian army here the people here defended themselves and basically uh, they've done a real good job of it the fact that we're still here seven years later against the ukrainian army which is like one of the biggest armies in the world with u.s backing and billions of dollars of military aid intelligence weapons instructors there's at least 4,000 U.S. military here in Ukraine right now, plus who knows how many hundreds or thousands. It's at least a 1,000 of U.S. mercenaries, contractors, Blackwater, those dudes that are here. The EU is backing them to the hilt. SAS is here from England. Canadian Special Forces are here. Polish Special Forces are here. These are snipers. These are killers in my neighborhood where I live, there was a guy, he got uh, got shot a couple of weeks ago, a couple of miles from where I live. The dude uh, was in a wheelchair. His house had been hit by artillery a couple of years before he got hit. He lost his leg, so he's in a wheelchair. And the sniper, Ukrainian sniper, or at least a sniper from the Ukrainian position, shot him in his other leg, blew his other leg off. So now the guy's got no legs. He's still alive with no legs. That's the kind of stuff. These snipers, they shoot like they, there was a, a case maybe a couple of years ago. A little kid playing outside in the yard. And the sniper starts shooting all around the little kid. Doesn't shoot the kid. You know what I'm talking about? Like two or three years old. But starts shooting, you know, within a couple of feet of him to the right and left. You know, these guys, they fly regular real nazi flags german nazi wehrmacht flags with the swastika they fly them on their positions you know they have swastika tattoos they put swastikas and ss on their uniforms you know these are genuine nazis that we're defending ourselves against and this you know yeah. they were put in power by the u.s and uh you know we have every right to defend ourselves as any decent human being would against scum like that.
0: Let me ask you this. So, when I cited these reports from the Southern Front article by the the established investigative journal uh, and reputable Paul Antonopoulos, that is, first of all, consistent with, with your understanding there on the ground, what he reported?
1: Absolutely. South Front is one of the best independent, objective, honest news sources there is about what's going on here and also in Syria. But Particularly here, it's an excellent source of news.
0: Well, let me ask you this, Russell, and I want to remind folks that we are visiting with Russell Bentley. He is a U.S.-born separatist military employee, for lack of better words, in defense of Donetsk and the uh, eastern Russian-speaking areas of the Ukraine. Well, President Putin has said that NATO forces are on the door, their doorstep, Russia's doorstep that russia can retreat no further from a rational national security concern red line for the russians if and when there is a russian response in your estimation what will look like i mean it seems to me that russia does not want to invade ukraine but wants to move the ukraine nato-led forces to a western front line if you will That would respect the Luhansk and Donetsk separatists and provide Russia with a buffer zone from Ukraine and NATO-based potential aggression platforms. But before we go on, we're at a hard break and need to take a quick pause for the cause. This is 91.7 KOOP, Hornsby, Austin. This is the premier community radio station of the nation. And this is bringing light into darkness Monday news and analysis. And we are blessed to have with us from the Donetsk front, Russell Bentley. We will be back right after this. Don't touch that dial.